0: Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast, my name is Andy Dowling and before we kick off this week's episode, I have a quick PSA, a public service announcement, Lord, being the band that I play in, has just released a brand new live album that was recorded at Prog Power 2016, Prog Power USA, I should uh, specify, and that is available right now online, digital and audio through your preferred online digital retailer, for video you can go to Vimeo And all the links will be over at andysocial.net or you can go to lord.net.au to grab your copy. We're also doing physical versions of the audio-only CD that will be released in February, but you can pre-order your copy right now. It'll be a limited edition release. The reason for the delay in time for that album to be released physically is that we have a bunch of unreleased Lord music that will be bonus content on that release. So you might want to secure your copy before it is sold out for good. We're only doing a very small limited run, but we'll let pre-orders go up until I believe mid-January. And then after that, well, good luck. And also before we kick into the episode, I must do a shout out to Tim Price, who was previously... ...on the Andy Social Podcast, I believe episode 94, Tim Price of Collision Course PR, who is pushing our live album. He's doing our marketing campaign, so a massive shout-out and thanks to Tim Price. If you're in a band, you might want to hit him up if you want to do any marketing for an upcoming release. He is quite good at it, and by the time this recording comes out, he'll be right in the thick of it, and our live album is going to be or will be probably by the time this uh, episode comes out the featured album of the week over at the faction which is tim's 24 7 heavy music digital radio station app that you can download by going to the faction.live but regardless everything will be over at andysocial.net so you can find all the links of everything that you need to learn more about what tim does and get the new lord live album so there we go public service announcement over. This week's guest is with Willie G. Now Willie if you don't know who he is he in my opinion is one of the best guitar techs in the world. Willie will love that I know. <laughs> if um, if you've heard of bands such as Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, Nevermore, uh, King Diamond then Willie has been guitar teching for all those bands for quite a number of years now. I've known Willie since I believe 2005 uh, when Dungeon was doing touring with Megadeth at the time. We met Willie then and ever since we've kept in contact and crossed paths a couple of times along the way. So I recently caught up with Willie. He was back home in Chicago and we just shot the shit for about an hour. It was really cool. Learned a little bit about his uh his part of the world growing up and uh, how he got into doing crew work and working as a guitar tech for some of the the best guitarists in in metal, Um, but also doing work with uh, the Black Eyed Peas, which is really interesting as well. But uh, really, really fun chat with Willie. Uh, It was 4 a.m. for me in the morning uh, when I called Willie, and Willie was uh, just coming off a very late night of doing some uh, show work. So he had a cold... I was trying to get caffeinated, but I think we got through a pretty good and uh, we got a pretty good uh, episode out of this. So I really hope you enjoy it. If you want to reach out to Willie, he probably doesn't want you to reach out to him, but I'm going to put a bunch of links to various things that we talk about over at AndySocial.net. So make sure you go over there, check it out. If you've got any questions, I'm sure that Willie would be happy to answer them or you can field them through me. I'm more than happy to be uh, be the vetter of, uh, of legitimate questions to Willie, I'm sure. So without Any more rambling from my end, please enjoy this episode with Willie
1: G. Hello. Good morning. What's going on?
0: (laughs) I'm waking up. How about you?
1: (coughs) Um, I'm desperately searching for facial tissues because either I've got some kind of weird allergy thing that's kicked in, which is highly possible. Uh, mostly because of, like, dust and, you know, things like that. Or I picked up a cold from constantly being inside a steamy hot ballroom and then being out on the streets in, like, 30-degree weather, mm. backing trucks in. In and out. Yeah. Lovely. Not to mention, the place isn't exactly the, the most clean place, in the world. you are going to get a ballroom with 5,000 people in it spilling drinks and stepping all over a place like that, and we've got, uh, uh, theater cable that we have to run to front of house for, for, you know, for the lights and sound, and then at the end of the night, all that has to come up. So we have we have these rubber mats that we cover the cabling with, and you have to move all these idiots that have been listening to EDM all all night, whatever, <laughs> out of the way. And there's like you know lime slices from their drinks and spilled beer, and hopefully nobody's been like out in the crowd just pissing on the floor because they're too lazy to go back to where the bathrooms are. And you have to untape the mats, and roll up, you know, all the stuff, and then pull the cable up. You know, we'll have gloves and stuff too, but, you know, it's just basically it's just germ central, you know. Then it's like, okay, somebody, get, you guys get out there, stop traffic so we can back the trucks in, you know. Now it's been like 80 degrees inside or something like that, and you're touching concentrated hepatitis or whatever the hell out of that. and then you're out there at 30 degrees in the rain or wherever it is trying to back a semi-truck in on a busy street. It's, you know, pleasant work.
0: Oh, yeah. I bet um, either you... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry it, about that No, that's alright There's Me, no way to do that
0: quietly <laughs> Elegantly ah! <laughs> Either you've got the best immune system or the worst immune system
1: Well, I, I usually seem to have the worst of the best And the best of the worst So, I don't know, there's got to be a mixture of it in there somehow I don't know, I'm just, I'm cursed I don't know, i just, you know, totally cursed
0: Depends on how you look at it <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I, I've, I've come to the realization that it's highly possible that i'm like at the very least a uh, supporting character or co-star of some really bizarre reality show on a different uh, dimension of universe or something
0: it, not the truman show the Willie show
1: well well I'm, I'm not sure that i'm the focus of it but i'm definitely <laughs> like you know if, if this is uh if it's Happy Days, I'm definitely like Ralph Mouth for Patsy or something. <laughs> I mean, I'd be Richie or the Fonz, but I'm definitely, you know, like...
0: You're a sidekick in there somewhere. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so you're in Chicago at the moment, back home? Yes, I am. Have you always lived there?
1: Well, I grew up in, in uh, you know, less than an hour away. Mm. in um, Gary, Indiana... Yeah, that Gary, Indiana. <laughs> what was it like
0: living in Gary?
1: <laughs> Definitely nothing like it's like living there right now. I would assume. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sadly, um, I mean, it's not exactly like uh, you know, that you're familiar with Detroit at all. Yeah. You know, this. You know, I, re- I remember uh, on an early tour, um, going through Detroit. With uh, a band from Germany, and it was kind of funny because we're going through like some areas or are, like downtown that should be more like a business area. and there's all these like buildings, you know, huge you know like kind of office or or commercial uh, business buildings that like aren't occupied. and you know there's like these grates uh, on the street you know, from uh, uh, the sewer, whatever it is, or that. you know, it's like steam issuing from it. There's like all these European uh, band guys or whatever, are, like videotaping because it looks like something from some like post-apocalyptic, you know, that. thing like that. Nobody's on the street. All the buildings and stuff are there and there's just like, you know, steam coming out of the ground and stuff. It was quite amusing. <laughs> so, you know, Gary's nothing like that mostly because we don't really have, you know, steel grates on the street for steam to come out of over there. Um, but, businesses have really floundered there and you know it's in it's in a really bad state of decline and um uh, as a kid it wasn't really so much like that because there was still you know uh the steel industry was still going really strong and there was uh companies that did things that either had to do with automotive or uh just you know just transportation things where they, they would build uh parts for cars or you know um you know large like maybe commuter trains and things like that and there was still that kind of production going on but by um I don't know. It seems like it started drying up a lot by uh, the late 70s going into the early 80s. Mm. Uh, one of the companies that did that stuff wound up closing that plant. And I think people, uh, some of them relocated uh, people to uh, Pennsylvania somewhere. I want to say probably Pittsburgh. Mm. So everyone who wasn't willing to like, you know, just, you know, pull up roots and, and move there basically was just left without a job. So it was, you know, it got very strange, but um, as things went on, it's like, you know, there's more and more places started uh, leaving uh, that whole area. I remember by like 1981 or 80, there wasn't even a place in town where you could buy a rock album at all.
0: Yeah, right. Well... And was that, is that around the time that you've relocated to Chicago or were you there for quite a
1: few years? No, 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 no. Um, I got a, uh, job downtown, uh, luckily, uh, from, uh, a friend of mine that I went to uh, college with hmm. and he worked at a place, uh, that his father, uh, was a salesman at. It was like a printing graphic, uh, advertisement kind of place. And his dad worked there, and he would work there during the summer. And I left college. I never uh, finished uh, university. And he would work there in the summer, and then he would go back. And he'd go, hey, you know, I'm leaving. They're going to need someone to, like, fill that position. So I went in, and they hired me. And I worked at this place for 10 years, and it was right uh, downtown. And that would have been, like, in the mid-'80s. And I started, you know, you know, dabbling with playing in bands and stuff by the time it was like maybe 1987, I think. By the time I was I had like a I finally got a band going and. Uh, man, when was that? I was basically like working in, the, in Chicago, uh, going to shows here, rehearsing here, doing shows here like doing any kind of like shopping or purchasing I had to do was almost always there. So I wound up, uh, just coming over, uh, by the mid nineties, I guess it was. Yeah. Okay.
0: When you, when I mean, you, it was, you
1: know, you can get on a commuter train, you know, and, and be right in downtown Chicago from Gary in an hour okay. or less.
0: So it's not too far. No, not at all. Yeah. When you, when you were starting up that band, what sort of uh, music were you playing at the time? That was mid eighties
1: yeah i I met a, uh a guy i think it was 1985 at, or maybe it was 86 by then and uh we were trying to put together you know you know you kind of like thrash b metal thing and it was really tough finding other people that you know if they had any interest in doing that if they had you know basically the that technical ability to pull that stuff off we'd met a couple of guys before and um you know i liked a wide variety of, of Of you know in particular uh heavier music and originally we were trying to do stuff you know definitely um no lighter than you know maybe maiden things but we were trying to we figured that uh if we kind of broke some people in with the maiden thing maybe we can start slipping you know some anthrax or or metallica stuff in there that kind of style and um he'd find the other guy that I was jamming with you know that was you know the guy who was into the more extreme stuff would find these guys and they weren't really like thrashers and stuff and we'd get together and jam and then we'd wind up playing like for you guys it'd be called the angels and in, in the states we called them at that time it was angel city and you know i know like a lot of that stuff so we wind up jamming that kind of thing and then the other guy would get really annoyed because you know he always wanted to push his agenda. So, but finally he wound up, uh, he, he wound up joining the Navy. So nothing happened for a long time that, you know, it, you just couldn't find guys that would, uh, that, you know, would be able to do that stuff. Or if they were able, they didn't want to do that stuff. You know, it's like, you know, 1986 and, you know, more of the commercial like metal and glam stuff's in and, you know, do, do stuff to get chicks or to make money or whatever reason was they were doing it. Um, we just couldn't find that stuff, you know, and then there were some guys who didn't want to play with me because I was black. Oh, right. Yeah, there was, you know, there was a lot of that kind of thing going on, so. So, but, you know, but then my buddy wound up uh, getting a discharge from the army because he had a uh, medical discharge or something like that, and we finally got, a you know, uh, a band kind of going around 87.
0: Wow. Just going back to what you said about guys refusing to play with you because you were black, did you, I mean, did you have to cop that quite a bit at that time?
1: oh yeah you you see that all the time you know there you know they you know even not even so much um band things just in general I remember I was actually talking about this last night. it was funny because um I didn't speak to him, but I saw the guy uh a few days ago at a at a friend show that he showed up at But there was a guy who uh was the singer of some band that was decidedly more along the glam commercial thing mm-hmm. and at the back in those days we had um you know, small bars and clubs that uh, that supported local music a lot. And they would have things, they'd have, you know, Battle of the Bands things and jam nights, open mic nights. So I would w- always wind up going to these uh, clubs, number one, because I wanted to, you know, hear new bands. I wanted to hear my friends' bands. And it was a good place to kind of scout around to look for people for your own band. Mm. So I'd go to these clubs a lot. And there was a jam night once and this guy was there. And, you know, a lot of people hadn't shown up yet or maybe people that he knew weren't there and he was kind of hanging out. and He was saying, oh, there's nobody to jam with. And someone said, hey, he'll jam with you. And he looks over at me and just goes, <sniffs> and like turns and starts doing whatever else he's doing. Yeah. So like these guys wouldn't even play with you at a jam night. because you know, But it's not even so much that, you know, like they're making a racial thing out of it. But I mean, this guy at one point, I heard uh, that he didn't want one guy in his band because the guy's hair was short or he didn't have the right haircut. <laughs> but then, uh, the guy grew his hair out at one point, and the guy went up being in his band and they were like friends and bandmates for probably a decade or so after that. Because the guy, you know, was a, was a pretty good bass player and, you know, was good to harmony vocals and stuff. But, you know, at the time, the guy didn't want to have anything to do with them because his hair wasn't right. You know, those, that's the way things were in those days. I heard a, a story once before about Joe Satriani, I guess, uh, trying out for a guitar spot for House of Lords. And they didn't take him because his hair was long. They got whoever was in House of Lords. Was it Craig Goldie? I don't remember who played guitar in House of Lords. lenny Cordola or something? I I forget who it was. I
0: might have to look it up. Um, So just going, I I don't know where the timeline of events go, but when, I mean, obviously starting to play in bands in the mid-80s, when did it get to a point where you were taking for bands and were you sort of doing like, work in the in the industry on and off over that period of time because obviously you had your job that you're doing oh no, no no no
1: nothing like that um i was just you know another schmuck you know with you know very you know limited amount of of skill but i just liked i just like playing but i was just like a guy with a day job who you know had a band and i had a kind of ridiculous guitar setup and and you know and you you have you know a a a a a bit of an exaggerated guitar rig, things are going to go wrong. So I had to start, you know, learning to figure out what the problem was when I had a problem. Hmm. And at one point, you know, I had a four way splitter and I had, uh, you know, a stack going for a guitar and I had some other speakers running, a, you know, a guitar synth and, then another separate amp to ran a talk box. You know, I had all this stuff hooked together and, you know, and stuff would go wrong. And so I didn't have to, like, back and troubleshoot and see what the problem was. So I started kind of figuring out how to do some things just from messing with the guitars myself. And uh, I wound up losing that job uh, around the same time, around the mid-90s or so. And uh, a friend of mine uh, that I knew from... Uh, he was a singer in a different uh, band than when I was in, but, you know, lo- we all knew each other and he was, you know, a stage hand and a touring guy. And I never found out how he got into the touring thing, but, uh, he was out on tour with, uh, King diamond and he wanted to jump off of that tour because a ba- another band that he worked with was going out and doing stuff with the Dave Matthews band. And, uh, he wanted to get on that but he had to find to fill in for him on King Diamond and I you know I had just lost the job I had been at for a decade and um I had stopped uh, playing like in my thrash band and I started playing this band that was you know basically a Motown review for the money and but I was hating it I was hating like there's you know you know, I was I was making some money playing guitar, but, you know, it was like, uh, I hate wearing, you know, the, the suits we had to wear. I wasn't really <laughs> into the music. Yeah. There was a lot of annoying stuff, a lot of it. So I wound up being asked if I could take over this King Diamond Tour for a while, because he knew I knew how to, like, solder, you know, and tune a guitar, and, and, and more importantly, I was available. That's what it came down to. Mm. He knew I could tune a guitar, and I was available, and he wanted to go do this other thing. So I agreed, and... Mm, Basically, what it came down to is those guys lined up, wind up liking me more. And whenever they came to the states and they needed someone, they would call me. In the meantime, my buddy had kind of went on and started doing more like pop bands. You know, he he was doing like stuff like Smash Mouth or, or you know or whatever. And, and I started doing these, the, you know, doing the metal stuff. And it was all totally by accident. It was mostly because I was sober. And I was there and I had, and I could tune a guitar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Big redeeming factors that separates you from everybody else very quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah. It still happens today. I'm there and I'm, and I'm, and I'm not fucked up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that if you didn't get laid off from your job, that that wouldn't have happened at all? Do you think you just would have just kept doing your, your job that you've
1: been in for 10 years? Oh yeah, Definitely. Yeah. Well. So there Sometimes I'd still, I would still I I I lie awake at night weeping about <laughs> you know what could have been. What could have been? I could be <laughs> in early retirement. You know, I'd be like five years away from early retirement right now. Who would sign? Believe me, I know what I missed. I had, uh, I'm sure it would have changed over the time. But why yeah. was when I was there, you know, I had a 35 hour work week. I had you know full insurance. I had I was up to four weeks paid vacation. Uh, overtime double time you know you know it was it was not a bad gig but there was a particular person that they had there that was the manager of the department i was in mm-hmm. and this guy was not only a moron he was just not not a people person he had no idea how to be a manager and he was just a bit of an idiot and uh you know, it just it did not work off. I, I, I always seem to develop a, a rebellious streak late.
0: On that um on that first King Diamond tour, who was who are you teching for? Who was the guitarist at the time?
1: And here's where things start to all get tied together. Oh right. Was okay. one young Canadian lad named uh, Glenn Drover. I was gonna say, I wonder if it was Glenn. Yeah. So there you Glenn go. had just been hired to do the voodoo tour. Yep. And uh, that was his first time touring. And then it was also my first time touring. And, you know, we we're both big Kiss fans and we like Pet Travers. And, you know, I wasn't, at those days, I wasn't as loud, obnoxious as my buddy was. And, <laughs> and I was a little bit more prone to let Glenn have his way about stuff and not argue, you know. So that didn't last too long. But So
0: it probably would have helped a lot given that it was his first tour as well. And, I mean, obviously, you being sober and present and, and reliable obviously helped, but um, having him there and him being his first tour definitely would have um, would have made it easier for yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of things. Glenn and I, you know, and Chris Estes the, was the bass player at the time, and he's a great guy. I haven't seen Chris uh, probably for, like, maybe it's close to two years now or something like that but chris estes was playing keyboards and basses and like that he's a fantastic guy I just really got along with those guys really well one of my favorite memories from that was like cracking up i don't know how they do this but you know we were messing around before a sound check or something and chris and uh glenn start playing like a mr big i think they were playing like a. um I can't remember what the song was. It was like the first song on maybe the second Mr. Big album or something. But they were playing like, you know, some really strange, maybe they, maybe they started trying to play a, a bit of a Race or X thing or something like that. And mm-hmm. it was just kind of funny because, you know, we all kind of knew about the same stuff. I could, there was no way I could play those songs. Yeah. But we all knew the same stuff. We, so we, we, we kind of meshed, you know, a little better. But particularly Glenn and I, uh, because I just spent more time, you know, with him. And with that being his first tour and stuff and he felt you know a little on the outside and so we bonded a lot easier so anytime glenn did things he always wanted me to be his tech because he uh, you know i just knew things he was really big on 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 the Kaler verbatim system and i owned guitars with so i knew how to you know deal with their things and Mm. you know and he just felt like more he could talk you know to me because we had so much stuff in common So one reason I'm still doing this, I still have to say Glenn Rover was a major factor in me having anything to do with anything.
0: He's responsible.
1: Yeah, it's his fault.
0: (laughs) What was the dynamic like on that first tour as far as, you know, uh, because one thing that I've noticed over the years is uh, depending on which bands you play with and you work with, um, the dynamics can change as far as etiquette and and where things are and who does what and uh, where, where you should be and where you shouldn't be. What was, what was that like on that first tour? And I guess for you being, you know, this is this is the first time you've been sort of in that situation where you've got to sort of work out where, where you fit and, and, and how, and how it all works.
1: Oh, it was, it was definitely kind of strange. There was a couple of times like, uh, I think like the the musicians kind of got comfortable with things and so things would go right. so they would do these, like I'm standing there, you know, and I'm, you know, checking over the gear, double checking the guitar and keeping an eye on them. And they would come over and say, Hey, I need a beer or whatever, you know, go grab me a beer for the dressing room. Because, you know, we didn't have something like say a stage cooler where we'd had stage drinks or whatever in there. Mm-hmm. And they'd want, you know, a beer or something would be anything there. So you had to go get it. There's no it, production assistant. No and look, King diamond didn't have a huge crew, Yeah. So, we would do the show, and I would go, you know, into the dressing room or whatever, looking for the beer, and let's say the tour manager would be in there, and he'd get wide-eyed. Yeah. What are you doing in here? You go back to the stage. You know, they, they didn't know what I was doing. You know, it's like, what's this new guy doing? He's like, what's he doing? Why is he not at the stage? <laughs> well, he you know everything would be there, and just, everything's working fine, and, yeah. you know, the band's not worried about it. They're more worried about, you know, I need a drink. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, there was that, and then uh, I another guy who was the monitor engineer i think at the time he he may be the stage manager as well yelled at me for uh uh giving guitar picks to people oh but it wasn't like i was giving them away from stage It'd be like you know something on the ground and you know the my arch enemy the pick collector you know who was not my arch enemy at the time (laughs) just be yelling you know can can i have the playlist well can i have the guitar pick and it'd be something on the ground and you know pick it up give it to him and whatever and the guy came Only, only the is to give out the picks. He was just very, you know, regimented and strict. I'm, I want to say, you know, no, I'm not gonna say anything, and then I'll start saying that I'm making racist, uh, racist jokes and comments. I'll keep that one to myself. But right. he was very like stern, regimented kind of guy. Only the baddest to give out the picks. So I'm like, no, it was, it's not. It was just on the ground, and he like, he would like yell at me. Only the baddest gives out the picks. He'd like walk away and that guy wound up getting out of the business he's a policeman now so <laughs> maybe he was better off doing you know doing that but he was you know pleasant guy other than that really nice guy he actually helped me because uh on a, on a later megadeth tour uh while keeping an eye on the same drover i wound up losing my uh phone in a airport in copenhagen and he was uh him and another guy actually were very uh helpful in getting me that phone back it was my, was one of my famous BlackBerry stories whereby, you know, I had this habit of either breaking, losing, or having a phone stolen. And it's, it's become almost like a running joke with people. But yeah, I wound up leaving my uh, phone and, uh, airport of Copenhagen and then they turned it over to the Danish police and it took uh, uh you know all my King Diamond connections to get my phone back <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> the Ke- King Diamond is the Kevin bacon of metal <laughs> like everything goes back to King Diamond sooner or later
0: <laughs> I love it um going back to just I guess some of that etiquette around uh, being on stage no doubt you probably would have had to learn lessons the hard way as you mentioned a couple of just examples there but did you learn a lot from other techs doing
1: just the wrong thing over the years? I've learned more uh yeah I I learned a lot of things uh from other techs or watching you know other tech doing stuff because I've definitely done things where things have gone wrong and uh You know, sometimes you know, there's been guys that, you know, they just let you fail. But then there's been, you know, a few guys where they'll see you doing something and, you know, they kind of tell you, hey, uh, you might want to blah, 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 and, you know, and then you'll figure it out. But there's, there's been some stuff where there's been just horrible, horrible occurrences. And they're on, sometimes <laughs> it's on video. Even earlier on, there was one tour he did that uh, uh, was Opeth and Nevermore. And I'm teching for both bands and I'm the only, I was the only tech. Mm. And, uh, at the time, I think Jim Shepard was using uh, these cabs with two fifteens 15s yeah. in each cabinet, and Jeff Loomis had a uh, rack-mount thing where he had like a uh, PV power amp and uh, I think he was maybe using like a Line 6 Pod Pro rack-mount, and Opeth that come over, and they only had, you know, a monoclonal gear, they had their guitars and maybe like an effects pedal board, and then other than that, they would plug right into Nevermore's gear. And uh, I don't know why it happened to this day, whatever. I still don't understand how it happened. But uh, Nevermore would play before me. Well, Opeth would play before Nevermore. And their last song would be Demon of the Fall. And that one they tuned down Mm. uh, a drop tuning. And when the heavy part would kick in, they'd be thundering around. And Lewis's rack was on top of the 215. And all the bass vibrations, for whatever reason, at this particular show, made his entire rack vibrate off the top of this cabinet, and it fell, and the weight of the gear and the rack chopped the cable in half. <laughs> you know, it was, it was real anticlimactic, so they're trying to figure out why this isn't working, and why they, poor Peter Lingwood, he was playing guitar in the band at the time, and there was like, if anyone had problems on that tour, it was Peter. He was a magnet. There was always something with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, you mentioned uh, Nevermore and Opeth, and I think you've done taking for Anthrax and Slayer and Creator and whatnot, but I saw that you've also done taking for Black Eyed Peas as well.
1: Yeah, um, that's another weird kind of story. Um, I worked for this band called Soil. Okay. And at one point, Soil, Soil was uh, touring with Shinedown and... There was another tech that I that I uh, met because he was working for Shinedown, and uh, he worked for them for a bit. And by like 2004, I was with uh, Nevermore, but I mean, I'm sorry, not Nevermore. Well, I was with Megadeth, and uh, I kept running into you know various guys with Shinedown or Shinedown shows for some reason or another. It was just you know the luck of the draw. They'd be on the on the road, and Megadeth would be on the road. Let's say we're leaving. Uh, reno nevada or something and we're leaving and they're coming in because let's say maybe they're the next band that's playing at the venue that we were at and so i got to the point where i would see uh, uh these guys around all the time and i got pretty friendly with the tech yeah, you know, we talk all the time and, you know, trade information about things. Do you know who the latest rep over at Gibson is? I need to find this and that. Yeah, you know, call this guy. You know, that whole kind of like, you know, tech network thing. Mm-hmm. And I would always talk to him, you know, and he was a cool guy. And uh, somehow from there, I don't even know how he got the gig. But, you know, people don't know how I get my any of my gigs. And neither do I sometimes. Mm-hmm. But he uh, he wound up on Black IP's gig. And he uh, was... There for five or six years, and he got to be really friendly, and they're still friends. He was really friendly with the guitar player that was in Black Eyed Peas band at the time. And uh, the Peas were nearing the end of their touring cycle, and my buddy's got uh, you know a family. He's got you know, like four four sons, and you know he's married and and all that. And the tour cycle was ending, and I guess you know the guitar player was just trying to look out for his buddy. And he's like, "Hey, you know our tour cycle is going to be ending pretty soon." But Bruno Mars is starting up, and I guess he had an in over at Bruno Mars. So he talked to someone over there and got his buddy, his tech, uh, on the Bruno Mars gig, but they had to find someone to take over for the remaining Black IP stuff that still had to happen. And it turns out that the guitar player, who's uh, George Pahom Jr., uh, is friends with Dave Lombardo. Right. And... Uh, megadeth had been doing you know a lot of stuff with slayer we were doing these things american carnage canadian carnage um you know the european carnage tour and uh the guy would come out to a slayer show here and there when he was around uh to visit dave and he knew that i was friends with his tech so and i at the time i had just quit working for megadeth this was in 2011 uh after uh, after the Big Four show in New York, hmm. and I I quit working for Megadeth, and I got the Black IP's gig because he's like, hey, I'm going to Pluto Mars, blah blah. What are you doing? Are you available? Can you come take over? And I'm like, well, this is perfect. Uh, so I went to work for uh, Black IPs, I believe, in September of 2011, and uh, finished out their tour cycle stuff. But there were still things they did, you know, uh, these various one off shows and, and and everything. So I worked for them between. 2011 and 2013 and then they were relatively uh inactive so i was doing you know other bands in between stuff i mean there was a point where i would go maybe do some show that was a, a, a black ip show and then go back and do some stuff for megadeth because at that point i had returned to megadeth and that's a whole nother yeah Oh, yo-yoing! I'm, I'm a <laughs> bit of a of a of a of a musical yo-yo,
0: or, or as we would say in Australia, a bit of a boomerang. Yeah. <laughs> How did um, the Black Eyed Peas compared to some of the other bands that you'd been doing up until that point? Was was it a completely different sort of setting and requirements and things that you needed to sort of you know, I guess, trial by fire with with those guys, or was it more or less the same? Sort yeah, well,
1: thing? The, the, the whole machine was that much more huge i mean it seemed like anytime we do a show you'd be wherever you were for like almost like a minimum of three days just because of the sheer amount of time it took to get the gear in to whatever the location was because they were when they were carrying like their set mm. and get their stage built and things so like you know the uh the one guy will i am would have this part of the show where he would do a dj thing and he would have this uh DJ booth that was custom-built for them that would, like, go in the air and, you know, do the stuff. So these guys would need all this time to build the staging. And then, of course, you know, then we do the performance, and the stuff's got to come out. So at one point, we were in South America doing some shows, and and it seemed like anywhere we went, we'd be there for, like, a minimum of three days. My very first gig was in uh, Central Park in New York, and I was like in Times Square for the better part of like a week to do one show. Wow. <laughs> so you know, at, at their strength at that point, I think they were traveling with uh, a crew and entourage about 200 people strong. Everyone, I guess maybe including the band, I don't really know, but everyone that was doing that show was stretched out over three hotels <laughs> and my hotel's rooming list was like 40 some odd names long.
0: Wow. And then when you were doing the actual show itself, was there anything during those sets that you had to do that was completely different to what you'd done with like Megadeth or King Diamond or any of the guys beforehand?
1: Similar, but, uh, not really different. I mean, by the time I was uh, doing Megadeth, I was doing full on, you know, real time switching of any like preamp, uh, 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 presets and channels and effects off and on and stuff. That was all done real time by hand mm. uh, with Megadeth. So by the time I got to P's, uh, the guy had a pedal board he liked to use, but uh, most of his stuff was in a rack with a, uh, a rack-mounted effect switcher. And, and uh, the only thing I really would have to do during the show would uh, be you know double-check his guitar tuning and do his guitar changes, and he had a delay that I would manually have to uh, do the tap tempo thing with and I couldn't just you know tap in the uh, delay and be done with it he had me constantly you know like keeping time with the click or whatever just to make sure that you know maybe that's just a, a, a kind of a his like nervous twitch he always wants you to be hitting that tap tempo button because he's thinking the repeats aren't syncing up properly, Mm. but like if, but you guys are playing to a click and I hit it, you know, but I guess if he figures is, you know, if you're doing it manually, it's not as precise as, okay, we know that, you know, this song is 135 BPM. And, you know, if I program this delay to have a 684 millisecond, you know, delay thing it's going to be right. Instead, it's like, here's the delay sound. Here's the tap tempo. So just tap it in with the beat. So I do that and it sounds like was sinking in. Everyone's he'd look over at me and he would do the motion about tap. So I got to the point where I was constantly just bat, 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 bat on this, on this fricking, uh, uh, pedal. <laughs> would,
0: would that, have, would you feel the pressure of doing that? Like as far as, you know, having, I guess that manual sort of input. I mean, you've done yeah. You know, no, I
1: don't, I'm, I'm just, I'm past it. I just didn't really care anymore, but I was, I was too used to it. And funnily enough, uh, back when I was in a band, I was playing, like I said, I had, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of a stupid setup, and but in those days, unless you had some kind of Bradshaw rig or something like that, you didn't have all of those uh, uh switchers. And eventually, I think Rocktron and uh, Voodoo Labs came up with something that was like the GCX, and they had the GCX expander where you could patch in things and get MIDI control over your you know, non-MIDI effects, but my pockets weren't running that deep, and I did not have that gear. So let's say I might be able to play a song, I would go from you know my full-on metal tone, which would be my like my high-gain channel of my amplifier, maybe goosed with a uh, overdrive pedal or something. And then I'd go to another part that would be dead-on clean, with some chorus. And I had uh, an ART uh, multi-effect unit, and I'd have a, a pitch transpose on it or something. And one of my buddies would come and help me out at a gig, and because I couldn't hit all those pedals at the time, he would say, turn my uh effects unit on and maybe my chorus pedal so that all i had to do was like maybe hit my channel selector right so it was kind of funny because like it was like 1990 whatever and i got a guy over on the side of stage like turned some of my stuff on and off and on for certain songs so i totally understood you know what was happening by the time i started having to do it as a tech because i had a guy doing it. i had my own kind of like quote unquote tech doing my switching when I was in my, you know, little piddly band.
0: When you're doing things like that, I mean, obviously, yeah, having a little bit of, I guess, amateur experience back in the day to to get yourself started and get your head around it. But do you have to have some sort of, I guess, I don't know, like some sort of connection with that guitarist where you're, you're in sync while you're playing on stage or from a, you know, who you work with? Do, do guitarists really have to have their shit together?
1: To, yeah, I mean, especially if you, have, if you have a guy that's you know a little bit more of a loose cannon and you don't really know what they're going to do, but they're supposed to play the song the same way yeah. every time, but you but you kind of know he doesn't have to do it. You kind of get used to, like, maybe this guy's a little ahead of the beat or he's a little bit behind the beat or, you know, but basically it doesn't, if you know the songs and you have anything close to a, de- a decent sense of rhythm, you know, you should be able to do that.
0: And I guess the more shows that you do as well, you start to, you start to find your groove and, and you lock in a lot better as the shows progress.
1: Well, in theory anyway. Oh, yeah. I was able to, one funny thing, uh, I forget what show. I think it was an Ozfest thing. I was working for Soil at the time. It was just one of these once-in-a-lifetime things where it would never happen again. I had uh, one guitar player's foot switch for his bass up. And I'm side stage, kind of where the back line is. And the other guitar player, you know, we're playing Ozfest, second stage, and it's outside in summer. And guys got sunglasses on, and he comes running across the stage, say from stage left to stage right where I was. He wasn't really throwing them to me. But I guess he was trying to get rid of his sunglasses. So he's playing the guitar, and he takes his sunglasses off with his, with his picking hand and whips his sunglasses in the air, like towards the back line. Mm. So I've got the amp selector with my left hand, and I see these sunglasses come, like, through the air, kind of out of the corner of my eye. I just reached my right hand in the air, g- plucked the sunglasses out of midair, put them down on top of the handbrake, and went back what I was doing. And everyone <laughs> that was standing there had this, like, shocked look on their face.
0: <laughs> A true professional.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost like I didn't even look up. You know, I was doing stuff like that. My, my right hand just goes up. Plucks him out of the air and puts him down. Someone and looked. the jaws just dropped. I was like, I've never done anything like that again. <laughs> the only other thing that came close to that at, at the big four show in New York, uh, I was behind backline scrims, and Frank Bellow lobbed a base into the air, like from like mid stage across like a baseball arena, you know, stadium type stage. I go running out and like catch the base at the last minute with one hand. Fender custom shop like mellow signature bass. i was like holy right it's like, gotta let me know when you're doing that you just can't take it and throw it
0: have you had many instances where guitarists are, like, when they're doing their guitar changes with you that they actually physically throw the guitar at you instead of just handing oh, yeah. it yeah i mean have you ever had any instances where it's just whack you in the face or you've dropped it or or it's gone over your head <laughs>
1: Well, I haven't had any when I've dropped it, but I've had instances where a certain person that I, I can't remember anyone else. No, but remember, like threw the guitar, yeah, and smashed it a couple, few times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've never, I've never dropped a guitar that was thrown directly to me. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um... But yeah, it, but actually, I accidentally hit Dan Spitz in the face with one of his own guitars once. Not hard, but you know enough to shock him. <laughs> yeah. He would. He, I had this thing where I would hand him a guitar and he'd want me to put the strap over his head. And I lift the guitar up, but somehow he like leaned into it at the same time I was moving it forward. So it banged him into his forehead. So he blamed me for that. So whatever <laughs> he'll live. I think it was a hollow body anyway. You know, was you know, he's playing like a, a big hollow body, uh, uh, McCarty arch top or something. Oh, you know, yeah. That really nice guitar I was horrified. Uh, it was one of the anthrax you know reunion tour things and yeah. uh i forget what city it was in but a guitar shows up on a fedex truck and i go get it and bring it in i open the box i give him the case because he wants to be the first one to open the case he opens the case gorgeous prs like mccarty arch top anniversary you know edition guitar gorgeous flame maple top big fat you know not even like a. Uh, neck through, I think it was a totally hollow guitar, F-Holes audio. takes that out of the case, looks at it, tells me, yeah, in my accessory truck, I've got the custom round, uh De- Seymour Duncan pickups. Uh, take these out and put those in. I'm like, we haven't even plugged it in yet. <laughs> you know, that was probably one of the most expensive guitars I'd ever touched in my life at that point. And I was like, you want me to pull everything out of here? And here's the weird thing about it, the guitar was made for two humbucking pickups. He wanted this custom humbucker in the bridge and a Strat single coil pickup in the neck.
0: Oh, right. how did that sound? Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <I> <laughs> uh, well, no need to answer. Oh, you know, he would argue with me, and he and he probably he'd see me probably trying to punch me for some. like his tone would have been awesome if it was a band like Aerosmith yeah right okay or you know a blues rock kind of thing or even like something more like a, a classic rock you know kind of deal like david grissom the mm. fantastic texas blues guitar player was playing guitar for john mellicamp at one point and he had a he's a really he was a also a prs endorsee. there's a david grissom uh signature model uh prs guitar and if he was playing in it, something like that or even doing something like aerosmith it would have sounded great with Scott Ian on the other side with you know, humbuckers and, you know, two full stacks didn't really, you know, I can't necessarily that guitar say that guitar was the right guitar for that gig. Mm. So it's not like it was a bad tone, but it definitely was not the tone that most people thought would be appropriate for Anthrax. No, not
0: at all. Um, so you've worked with heaps of guitar- guitarists over the years. Hypothetically... <laughs> hypothetically if someone was going to approach you to for you to tech for them what makes a good guitarist versus a bad guitarist and I don't mean skill wise but I mean just having their their shit together
1: well that's that's part of the, you just kind of hit it having their shit together I mean as far as it's like taking for someone a lot of things it's like what kind of gear is this guy using you know what you know the, the, have I worked with it before what condition is it in what am I going to be expected to do with I me mean, once again, I guess I don't necessarily need to name names. So I like, oh, you should write a book. It's like, yeah, but if I do that, I'd have to have cosmetic surgery to change my appearance and go into, like, get my name changed and do a witness <laughs> protection program. Because if I told the stories that people actually want to hear, people would be coming after me. But <laughs> earlier on in my career, I was attacking for a guy that <sighs> – it was just stupidity. He'd have these – it's not like they were vintage, but he would have, like, say, a couple of older – Les Pauls, and let's say he had a Les Paul Deluxe that comes traditionally with mini humbuckers, and it's already been cut up, and f- standard size humbuckers have been installed in it. So the thing is already like null and void in my world. And, but he's got say the original Kluson tuning pegs on it, you know, with the uh uh the with the plastic keys, and you know there the you know the the tulip chef keys and all that. And this guitar has been so beat up that like one of the keys has a bent uh, uh, tuning stem and and he doesn't want me to take those tuners off and replace them with something that is more efficient and in better condition because you know they won't be original. I'm saying like it's already like not original. You physically removed wood for it for the pickups that are in it now. It's like when these things come out on the road they're now tools. If you have something that's like special or, or, or especially, at, you know, at the, we were like, you know, a four piece band touring in a van. Mm-hmm. Like if you got like an, an heirloom piece or a special vintage piece or, you know, something special to you, you should leave that at home. and You need to come out here with something that's a tool. Cause at this point now, this is a tool to get your job done and you have to have a reliable tool. And that's another thing I learned earlier on. It's like a lot of times you can't, argue with these guys even if you're right because the musician always thinks they're right <laughs> so you know th- th- this guy is you know he's got like two less paws and a double neck but they've got all these tunings and it's sort of that and it's like you know like, and if i'd known then what i know now i wouldn't have taken that particular gig but that was another one of those ones where it was lesson well learned and le- lesson learned hard and i did you know you know meet a couple of people and and uh, i learned a few things that way when i was out with those guys we did uh like you know some radio shows and stuff and slash the snake pit was on and adam day was still uh slash tech at that time mm-hmm. and adam day's one of the best techs in the business so you know but he, and he was actually very kind to me if I ever get a chance to see him again, I have to like remind him about that. And I learned a couple of things I found out a couple of things from watching what he did. So, you know, some, some good come can come of any situation, but that was definitely a miserable one for me. These guys just did not have their act together at all. You know, so this one, I'm now thinking, okay, well, what is this person using? What condition is their gear in? What exactly do they expect from, from this job? You know, because if you come in like with a, a $600 bass and a $3,000 bass and you want them to perform the same, you know, I'm not a miracle worker, you know, <laughs> and I'm definitely not a luthier. So, you know, you, you, but, but these guys have these really unrealistic expectations. So, and I it... had one guy that would, uh, he had two guitars and two tunings. And let's, let's say they're like D and C sharp and the guy go, okay, our first three songs are in D. So, give me the D guitar but tune my C-sharp up to D, so if something's wrong, I have a backup. But then before we do the next section, where there's three C-sharp guitars, tune it back to C-sharp. So I'll give you the D, you give me the C-sharp, now tune my D guitar down to C-sharp, and then before the next block of D songs, tune it back up to D, give it back to me, and then take the C-sharp guitar, tune it up to D. And what would happen was, they would play their first three songs in D, and then let's say they played two songs in C sharp, and then for whatever reason, and I don't know why he would do this, the singer would decide he's not going to follow the set list. And he'd call out a song from later. <laughs> so instead of playing the their song in C sharp, all of a sudden now they're playing a song from near the bottom of the, of the set that's in D. And I couldn't get the guy to switch because he'd be in full on metal performance mode. And he's playing a half step out of tune from the rest of the band because <laughs> he wouldn't come i would be literally standing there holding the guitar and like waving over at him like come over and he'd be totally ignoring me and then someone would tell him he's out of tune and then he'd yell at me tell me that i gave him the wrong guitar i'm like it's physically impossible there's only two guitars here look at the set list you guys aren't playing the right song the only other thing i would have been able to do was walk out on stage and take the guitar from him and of course i wasn't going to do that
0: <laughs> but it's your fault of course
1: yeah, it, it, it's always the tech's fault. There's sometimes you'll see. I think there's an interview with Gus G. Where he he'll admit sometimes that like there'll be something to go wrong, and he'll just like yell at the tech. And and it's you know the tech's cool with it because he doesn't want to give away that there's something wrong on the stage or whatever. He'll make it seem like there's a problem.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and there's a lot of guys that I've worked with where they'll make a mistake. Another guy whose name will go unmentioned, uh, we do songs that say there's four songs and he's playing the same guitar. And the first three songs go fine. And then there's some mistakes made on the fourth song. And he'll come over and goes, oh, you gave me this guitar. Uh, the high E string wasn't in the saddle. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. I'm like, well, how'd you play the first three songs with the string out of the saddle? Guitar solos and all. <laughs> you know, they just they'll just make up anything to,
0: to 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 inflate their or to nurture their ego.
1: I can see it now. Some, for some reason or another, maybe there's nothing good on TV that week or whatever. Somebody that like works for Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles or something will hear your podcast and they'll go next headline. Oh, Guitar Tech says guitar players are all idiots and assholes. I can see the next one. <laughs> hopefully, it won't be a slow news days and metal. A new a slow news days and metal, and this will be ignored.
0: Well, hopefully, but
1: gets- yeah, these guys are all jerks. If you had knew how to do anything else, you'd be doing it. But you don't know how to do anything else, so you're playing the guitar. <laughs> how
0: do you? How do you? practice patience with these guys i mean obviously i've we've crossed paths a couple of times over the years and and um i'm sure you've got your outlets but um you know you must have to have a level of patience to be able to deal with this stuff in the heat of the moment
1: um yeah well, here's another gag here's where where everyone else i know gets mad at me People am how do you put up with blah blah blah? how can you that that's like i'm used to crazy you guys never met my family I've been you're putting right. up with crazy for a long time, <laughs> and I'm a product of I'm a product of, of inner city public schools, so I'm used to stupid too. <laughs> so you're
0: born and raised.
1: Yeah, okay. you know I'm I'm a product of my, so I guess I guess that means I'm crazy and stupid as well. I must be because I'm still doing this job, but that's a whole <laughs> another story.
0: <laughs> One thing that I've noticed over the years, and just being connected online, and just watching some of your uh, updates as you're traveling around the world is that um, you're always doing these public service announcements for for your circle of uh, friends and acquaintances before you go off on tour and, and basically laying down the law to say, you know, I'm not contactable, don't do this, don't do that, whatnot. What are some of the pet peeves that you have when you're going on tour as far as, you know, friends and, and people that you know trying to reach out to you or even just like, as you mentioned before, like you, <laughs> you're... Um, your arch nemesis being, uh, you know, the the pig the pig hunter, uh,
1: the pig collector. God, pick I would say there's like these levels of scumbag. You know, there's <laughs> horse thieves, instrument thieves, child abusers, animal abusers, pig collectors. <laughs> and was like another thing is like I have. Some people won't believe it, but I actually have some friends. I've got, you know, I've got a few friends, believe it or not. There's some people who actually like me. I have a few friends, and some some of my friends have hobbies. And among those friends of mine who have hobbies, a few of them may be pick collectors. So I have some friends who are pick collectors, but I will never be friends with a pick collector. They are some of the most annoying fucking people on the face of the earth. <laughs> Never seen a piece of plastic that'll make a grown man act like a six year old child.
0: <laughs> Have you ever had an instance where someone's just gone absolutely crazy, psychotic over a pick?
1: Kind of, yeah. And actually, it'll cause like a few like actual and almost fights. I was doing a, a creator tour once. We played a smaller venue, and there's two guys, and one guy, he's like nervous or whatever. And he's kind of like stammering, you know. So the show's over. The band's not there. It's me and one other guy, and we're you know cleaning up the gear. And you know, I got some things out. You know, my my, my little tech world's out, and I'm casing guitars, away and wrapping cables, whatever I'm doing. And this guy and his friend comes up, and one guy is kind of like stammering. He's like trying to figure out how to word it, or maybe remember that and he basically he was going to ask me if he could have a guitar pick. I was like, hey, uh, man, I'm um, I'm sorry. Um, I was just uh, yeah, he's doing that, and this buddy goes. Oh, look, here's one right here. And he just reaches over onto my work area, starts taking guitar picks, like, off of my case. Mm. Didn't even ask. He goes, Look, here's some right here. And just reaches and grabs them. And I chew him out and I snatch him back. And the guy actually wanted to fight. <laughs> and we were going to fight right there in the club. And then some other people came. And, you know, then he, like, backed down or whatever. And But, yeah, it's like, I'm, you know, I for there's so many, it's, it's almost like, I feel like, and, and that's the other thing. And a lot of the other guys in the road get mad at me because I'll actually stop and talk to, you know, the people at the show. And a lot of them, they won't even make eye contact with them. It's like, why are you even talking to them? It's like, well, you don't understand. It's like, usually I'm on that side of the barricade. I've never been one of these guys that have been pestering like the road crew of the band or whatever, but I'm usually on that other side of the barricade and I'm a fan of this of the genre that usually I went up working in and a fan a lot of times of the same bands that I'm working for. Like I you know, I've been in the Mega since like nineteen eighty five easily. Mm. And uh, so I understand, you know, a lot of times these shows the fans are but it's like they go there and they act like it's their first time at a at a concert. It's like I tell you guys you don't seem to realize There's no such thing as extra and spare picks as long as this band exists. When we leave here, there's other shows to do, and I have to have things for that next show. So everybody in this crowd is not going to get a pick because they want a souvenir. That's why we sell T-shirts. Go to the back and buy something. If you happen to get something good for you, you got it. But don't stand there. I've, I've got a truck to pack. And all these other guys don't even want to look at you. I can't stop to try to figure out what you're yelling up at me after I've had this razor-sharp guitar sound pouring into my ear for the last hour and 15 minutes and stuff. Now I'm trying to strain and listen to what you're trying to tell me. Don't even talk to me. There's like four (laughs) guys, five guys in the average metal band. There'll be like 127 people all yelling for a set list. How many set lists do you think I have up here? (laughs) You're a grown man or a grown woman. This is a piece of paper. You saw the show, nice memory. You probably had your stupid phone out taking pictures or videos or something like that, but now you want the set list too. Oh, and there's their pick. No, 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 that pick can I, Hey, can you ask the guy if there's a drumstick? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, can I, they act like I'm their wa- their waiter. They're up there, they're yelling for water and stuff. I'm like, what's wrong with you guys? Have you ever been to a show before? Have you ever been to a show without that? and everyone's handing you over water and playlists and drumsticks? And I'm like, that's why they have VIP packages and stuff where you guys get these little tidbits. Leave us alone. <laughs>
0: Does that? I mean, is that just a usual common occurrence with most shows that you're just going to have it's that? It's a occurrence of
1: at every. The only reason I even like big festivals, say like Vakin or something like that, is because you're so far away from the crowd. <laughs> there's no chance of anyone
0: and uh, getting getting in in amongst uh, your job.
1: Yeah, yeah. You can, you can barely see them, let alone hear them. But there's still people that will say. Can I have that after the gig? I said, like, "What? You want me to leave the stage in the middle while I'm breaking down and go and find you a, in a literal crowd of thousands of people and give you something because you think you deserve to have?" I'm like, I'm like, what's going through their minds? I just don't understand. That's why these other guys I say, "I don't even don't even look at them. Don't even." But you know, it's like these people are like they're you know buying the tickets and stuff. They're the ones who are basically enabling us to do what they do and all of them aren't idiots and assholes they're some of you know like you know our current president says you know there's some very nice people on both sides mm. you know they're they're not all you know nazis and, and redneck idiots waving Confederate flags some of them are nice people yeah yeah they're not all asking me for you know so-and-so's shirt that they wore on stage and you know a guitar pick for everybody in the band. Some of them are actually nice people. And as like they're coming to the show, they're the ones who are allowing us to do what we do. And that's how we're paying our bills. Just give them a little bit of respect. You know, I'm a fan. I get it. But some of these people just, they push things too far. Can I have a pick? I can have a pick. Yeah, here's a pick. No, no, no. The green one. Look, you got a pick. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you don't get to be choosy.
0: You take what you get. That's it. Go away. <laughs> Um, on tour, if you could, if you're in complete control, what would be the ultimate tour day meal prep as far as breakfast, lunch, and dinner for you?
1: Man, here's the thing. People (laughs) think I'm crazy also. There's a lot of reasons why they think I'm crazy. I kind of don't care about food. If I didn't have to eat, well, you know, I I do have this, you know, a a fetish for a good pizza or whatever, but if, if I didn't have to eat, I wouldn't do it. So I almost really don't care. Having said that, and it's a shame too, because I'm, 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 I'm struggling with meat guilt right now, but I really like, you know, a properly cooked piece of bacon. Actually, I like more than a properly cooked, I I basically want all the bacon, but, um, I don't know, meals, meals, let's see. Um, I'm not that picky, you know, I just, you know, dry cereal, you know, some bacon, whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, just let's just do that all day long. I don't care.
0: Yeah. <laughs> dry cereal you know, bacon dry, and bacon.
1: Dry cereal and bacon and breakfast, and then pizza for the rest of the day. Maybe with some fruit thrown in there, and uh, fruit juice.
0: Well, the reason why I asked that is I remember just um, a few months ago in Jakarta, and and um, and I think you made a couple of comments about just trying to find some some decent food just to tie you over, and I guess touring all the time you just Jakarta was the...
1: horrible for food. Everybody, <laughs> not only was usually everything wrong, but it was slow. <laughs> Different times, yeah. You was know, like you go to like to the hotel, and you're in the restaurant of the hotel, and there's almost no one in there, and you wait like. 30 or 40 minutes for a hamburger and it comes out wrong
0: Guys,
1: <laughs> guy starts arguing with me that, no that's cheese but sir I don't think this is cheese yes it's cheese said, well, give it to me give it to me he's all angry he walks back to the kitchen with it he's in there for a few minutes come back it's mayonnaise is that okay I'm like no it's not okay <laughs> sir order a hamburger with no mayo and cheese you bring me one with mayo and no cheese Are you ask me if it's okay I've been here for 45 minutes waiting for a fucking... This is why I go to McDonald's. It's not that I like McDonald's because even though McDonald's will also fuck up about 78% of the time, it's only a few minutes to wait and it's cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And scarily enough, I don't like to really think about that. McDonald's basically almost tastes exactly the same everywhere in the world. So at least even though it's poison, I know what poison I'm getting. You know, it's the devil that you know, you know?
0: Absolutely. It's some consistent poison.
1: You gotta go. with the devil, you know?
0: <laughs> all right, I'm keeping an eye on the time. I've got a couple of quick questions for you. So, going back to your early days growing up. Worst
1: podcast interview ever. No way. I no. can see all the comments now on and-
0: it. Well, yeah, p- uh, pick collectors are Nazis. All guitar players are, are
1: assholes. No, Pit collectors aren't Nazis, <laughs> they're just scum the earth. Scum the earth. <laughs>
0: What was the what was the first metal album you ever bought?
1: The first metal album, and we're not talking about like Kiss being metal, right?
0: Oh well, it depends on how elitist you're going to be with your your classifications. Up to you. Yeah.
1: The first straight up metal album. What, what, man, I almost feel like I should go get my vinyl and look through it and, and figure it out. But uh... well,
0: the first one that you can remember, anyway. Defining, right, it was, you know,
1: like I, said, when I when I was like younger, you know, a kid at that, I was broke. You know, there, there was, you know, I didn't get an allowance. I wasn't allowed to have like you know after school jobs and stuff. I basically would like not eat lunch. I think is how I grew to like you know not really care about food. I wouldn't eat lunch. I would save my money, and then I'd buy like Guitar Player magazine or I'd buy an album if I was lucky enough to find a place to buy an album, or uh, I'd buy strings for my guitar. Uh, so let me think because wow, you know, most of the stuff basically I was living on Kiss in my earlier It probably was uh an A C D C album I'm thinking. Rest in peace, Malcolm. Yeah, yep. Really? Uh, wow, let me think of what that would have been. May have been either back in black or but you know, then somebody's going, A C D C isn't metal either. Okay, so you wanna go that you wanna go that far, how's huh? so your first metal album maybe would have been uh Ant-Tex, Fistful of Metal. Yeah, possibly. Bro. Or or maybe have been an an Iron Maiden one too yeah uh and w- let's go with uh it had to be either maybe peace of mind or number of the beast
0: okay that's pretty good and um what was the first gig that you ever went to first show metal or not wow
1: um i think it was judas priest on uh defenders of the faith
0: Whew. who was supporting
1: I'm trying to remember, because I didn't, I didn't get there in time to see much of the support band. I'm trying to remember. Was it docking I think, at the time? I know they... docking on the Tooth & Nail album, maybe? Possibly yeah. was a Not bad. But, you know, at, at that point, I really didn't... I, I knew about docking but I was, you know, I was really into Judas Priest, so...
0: Not there for the support bands.
1: Well, you know, not so much that, but if, uh, I was... Uh, I was uh, in in college, I think I was like 17 years old, and they were playing in Indianapolis, but I was in Bloomington, Indiana, and I could take a Greyhound bus, you know, it's like an hour away, and go to Indianapolis, you know, and, and, and if uh, people I know, like, you know, if you didn't have a buddy that was on campus or somewhere and was lucky enough to have a vehicle, you, you really didn't get around, but there's some people saying, oh, no, we could take the, you know, take the Greyhound to, you know, to Indy and go to this show or whatever, and I think the next one I went to after that might have been, like, uh, Crocus and Sammy Hager or something like that.
0: Nice, nice. (laughs) Um, All right, so wrapping it up, what's the next – what's 2018 look like for you? Where are you traveling around the world or you don't know yet?
1: I don't even know if I'm going to be alive next month. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Right now, things are, you know, I'm assuming – You know, with this business, you kind of take everything as it comes. You never know what's going to happen because literally anything can happen, and it usually does. But um, I'm starting to see some uh, reports about uh, uh, upcoming Megadeth stuff, but I haven't seen anything that happens before, like, springtime. There's a long time between now and this coming spring. Uh, But there's that, and... uh, other than that, really, I don't know what's going on. A lot of the acts that I've worked with are supposed to be working on albums or they are working on albums or they're on a break. So most of the, the, of the acts that I've tended to work with aren't really touring for a while. So I guess I have to find someone new to torture and be tortured by. <laughs> and but,
0: um, a lot of ballrooms in Chicago.
1: Yeah, I've been doing some, you know, I've been doing some stuff with Fergie's band as well, but I'm still waiting to hear when and if they're gonna sketch, schedule an actual tour for her i haven't heard any news whatsoever and i'm not getting my hopes up at this point unfortunately because you know the band once again it's you know it's it's the same basic band as uh the backing band for black eyed peas and they are great musicians and great guys i really like uh uh working with them music is not really quite up my alley but uh but you know they're, they're really good people and it's a good time uh and there's some other stuff that may or may not happen that uh, you know I'm not at liberty to talk about right now, and it's been kind of quiet, so I'm putting all my chips on not going to happen. But uh, you know you'll, you'll find out about it if it does. It's not that big a deal, uh, probably for you, but it, it's interesting mm-hmm. if it goes down.
0: Interesting. Do you do you normally get a lot of notice with these sort of gigs, or is there is there some is there instances where you get sort of like right the last minute you get told?
1: And he usually. You will find out what I'm doing before I will. (laughs) It gets to the point where like literally a lot of times I'll get an email or a message on social media or a phone call with someone telling me I'm coming through a town. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, I saw the internet today, you know, that blah, 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 and and that's what I hear about. (laughs) That's kind of like, okay, whatever. And and then, you know, all the concert tickets. And I don't buy tickets in advance to do anything anymore because that's a surefire way that something's going to happen on that date that requires me to be elsewhere, so just go buy a ticket to do something else.
0: So just wait for the press release.
1: Uh, well, you know, but then I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't really follow like metal news sites, you know. I don't like, oh, let's see what's, you know, and, and turn on my computer and go check Maps or like that. I've just never really been one of those guys. So I just assume that if something's happening that's going to involve me, somebody will eventually tell me, but they don't.
0: <laughs> all right man we'll enjoy the rest of your day and we'll we'll chat soon
1: all right thanks andy appreciate yeah.
0: it take care man all, all
1: right. right see ya, all right. Talk to you soon.
0: thanks folks all of the stuff that we spoke about in this episode will be in the show notes over at andysocial.net so if you don't know of all the bands that willie spoke about in the chat um, shame on you um, but you can go over to the show notes i'm going to put links and videos and lots of cool stuff and um, i'll dump everything over there as with all the previous guests on the antisocial podcast so you can go over and check it all out um some really cool stories there i I would love for Willie to be able to write a book, but as he said, uh, I think it would probably put him in a bit of hot water. But um, who knows? Maybe one day he'll finally just say fuck it and just uh, let it all out. But um, he's got some amazing stories, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about, um, I guess, probably some of the names involved. But um, that's me being a bit of a gossip girl. So anyway, moving along. Uh, Before we wrap this up, a couple of quick things that I need to mention. Uh, anti-social merch. I have merch. Yay, finally. Uh, T-shirts. And I've also got the first 100 episodes of this podcast on a USB flash drive, which is shaped as a credit card. So you can place that into your wallet if you need to, um, or keep it in your car. You can plug it straight into your USB device in your car and listen to the podcast wherever you go. It's very convenient. Saves you downloading every single episode. It's all in the one hand handy device. Everything is over on AndySocial.net. You can click on the links to buy stuff and there'll be a link to my Bandcamp merch page where you can get the t-shirts um, and the USB pass. And no doubt there'll be a bunch of other uh, apparel and other crap on there in the uh, weeks and months to come. So make sure you go over there. Um, also, as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, new Lord live album recorded at live uh, recorded at prop power USA, 2016, I'm almost there, guys. Um, you can download it, buy it right now, audio and video through Vimeo, um, andysocial.net and lord.net.au. You'll be able to find all the details of how you can purchase that live release as well as pre-order the physical version of the live album, audio only, which will include a bunch of bonus unreleased, never heard before, lord music. So you might want to get a hold of that limited edition. And finally, before I wrap it up, selfstarner.com.au, my new podcast, all about small business, self-employment, freelancing, a little bit left field of this podcast, but it is there. And if anybody's even remotely interested in doing something for themselves and sticking it to the man and getting out of their uh, job that they hate, then you might want to give this podcast a listen. Very early stages, but so far, so good. Really proud of uh, what I've put into it so far and lots and lots of stuff to come with that. So make sure you go over and check that out. You can listen to it on your preferred podcast player or go over to selfstartup.com.au and check it all out. And that's it, guys. You know the usual. Share this around, like, retweet, love heart, comment, tag, angry reactions, whatever you want to do. It all helps with the algorithms. So, and just passing this around and the fact that you're still listening to me talk. Thank you so much amazing amazing andysocial.net is the place to go you can also uh shoot me some money if you want to support the podcast by shouting me a beer over on the website use the amazon portal if you shop on amazon you guys know the drill you know how to support this podcast and support me you're already doing it by listening to me so i'm going to leave it at that we are almost at the end of 2017 i have a couple of more episodes to wrap up before we end the year off on a high um lots of information to tell you It's going to be a slight break at the beginning of 2018, but um, I'll reveal more very shortly. Until then, guys, and until next week, ta-ta.
1: You're ready.